FDD experts have worked for more than a decade on the threat posed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. As part of a multi-pronged strategy, FDD shared nonpartisan research and analysis with policymakers, lawmakers, and the business community. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is slated to hold its first hearing on the theocratic regime in more than two years with administration officials and top experts, and they have invited FDD's Mark Dubowitz, who founded our Iran program, to testify as an expert witness. He's with us today, as is FDD's Rich Goldberg, who recently served on the National Security Council as the Director for Countering Iranian Weapons of Mass Destruction. Also with us, FDD's Toby Dershowitz, who has played a significant role in shaping and messaging policies to counter the threats from Tehran. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, so in 1979, there was a revolution in Iran. I was there as a reporter, and I think actually I understood what many of my more experienced colleagues did not that this was not an Iranian revolution. It was an Islamic revolution. And its goal was clearly stated, death to Israel and death to America, death to the little Satan and death to the great Satan. But the new Islamic Republic was weak. To bring its capabilities in line with its intentions would require nuclear weapons. Now, a nuclear program actually predates the revolution, but it, it was for nuclear power, not nuclear weapons. And the U.S., assisted. Rich, can you provide a little more historical background? Maybe start from the beginning, what the revolutionary regime took over from the Shah and where they went with that? Yeah, there had been a historical uh, nuclear power program uh, that predates the the revolution, goes into the Shah's period. Uh, But the real story for us uh, starts sort of at the late end of the Iran-Iraq war right afterwards, where the Islamic Republic says, you know what? I think we do sort of want to go towards a nuclear weapon, right? There's one thing to have nuclear energy, potentially even exploring uh, different parts uh, of of the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, there's one, there's another decision to say, no, let's let's go buy schematics for a bomb, and that's what they went out and did. AQ Khan at the time was selling schematics, uh, was able to uh, procure for them. Go ahead. Let's just Jeff. make sure people. AQ Khan was a Pakistani nuclear physics physicist, am I right? And a and a huge proliferator of uh, nuclear te- technology for, for weapons making. Am I right? Correct. Correct. Result uh, of several nuclear weapons programs that exist today, uh, and the Iranians uh, bought uh, schematics. Um, and from what we've been able to glean, based on IAEA reporting from academic research, uh, a lot has come to light. Analysis that FDD has done and others from the nuclear archive you're all familiar with uh, in 2018 uh, that was discovered by the Israelis. 
uh, throughout the 1990s, we start seeing uh, this decision to start moving towards the enrichment of uranium, starting to build these original type of centrifuges that were in the schematics from AQ Khan, understand how to actually uh, master the fuel nuclear fuel cycle on your own soil, produce uh, enriched uranium. Uh, they start uh, doing this on a very, very, very small limited scale uh, with their initial what are called IR1 uh, centrifuges uh, that they're built based on the schematics. Uh, and they decide to start making this a little bigger. And so uh, as they've started uh, testing in the late 1990s, early 2000s, they start moving from one facility to another, the facility we now know as Natanz today, their primary enrichment facility you've heard about. Uh, and at that point, uh, some of the groups inside Iran figure out, some of the dissident groups figure out that there's a nuclear weapons program, that something's moving, and this starts being exposed to the world. Uh, and by two, late 2002, 2003, uh, the international community, as it is, United States, uh, our European allies, Russia, China, uh, are you know up in arms uh, at the International Atomic Energy Agency saying, whoa, this is a completely undeclared nuclear enrichment program that, that we are now learning more about. Iran has never declared that they're in violation of NPT. Iran says, oh, by the way, hey, we have this, this very limited uh, enrichment program. Uh, sorry, we, we forgot to tell you guys. Don't know where it came from. Don't have any details. But hey, here's this facility. You can come. You can take a look. We're not, we're not doing anything that's harmful. Uh, and so th that's when the idea of negotiations, a nuclear deal with Iran, already starts to become a terminology. And so a lot of people don't remember this, but Throughout the Bush administration, there are all kinds of machinations of what a nuclear deal with Iran would look like, still with a relatively nascent program, right? Of at least so we thought, right? We we at that point, two thousand three, uh, as negotiations start going on with the Europeans, the so-called E three, the UK, France, and Germany, uh, they put together their own package of incentives and and compromises to Iran. Uh, Iran rejects those. Iran makes its own offers. Basically, throughout all these, Russia makes an offer, the United States makes offers. Uh, all the offers from the West basically are premised on Iran must halt its enrichment of uranium on its own soil uh, because, because that is the proliferation concern, quite obviously, and sort of providing for them. If you, hey, you want nuclear power, okay, you're an oil-rich country. We have no idea why you want nuclear power. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But okay, you have this limited enrichment program. You can stop all that, and and we'll provide you nuclear fuel for for light water nuclear reactors for nuclear power if that's really what you want and you claim you want. Otherwise, we know what you're really doing if you say no. And Iran, of course, kept saying no. And you come all of a sudden. We think, okay, well, there's this one one facility, and it's contained, and we're seeing what's happening, and we'll keep talking to Iran. They're not really advancing too far. They're still in this limited centrifuge with very limited production uh, of enriched uranium. And then 2009 comes about, right? We have a new president, President Obama, comes into office with, with big dreams of we're going to reset relations with Iran. And oh boy, new intelligence comes to light. They've been hiding another secret facility, building one deep underneath a mountain. And that's the Fordo facility you've heard of near Combe. Uh, and turns out they've been advancing their centrifuges into newer type centrifuges that they'd like to start working on. They start installing centrifuges into this underground facility, start enriching more and more uranium. They start enriching to higher levels of uranium. 
And at that point, uh, the whole idea of a reset in relations with Iran goes out the window for the Obama administration very early on in its first term. The international community uh, very embarrassed that they have been caught without understanding the full scope of what Iran's clandestine program has looked like. Don't forget there was the NIE that came out, the National Intelligence Estimate in 2007, we'll remember. And America is in this post-Iraq war PTSD where we never found the WMD we were supposedly looking for. And the intelligence community overcorrects. And they say, we assess that Iran halted its nuclear weapons program in 2003. They had one, but when we invaded Iraq, they got scared. You know, they came open kimono to the international community. No, we found out what they were doing. And then they came open kimono and, and they've halted all work on nuclear weapons. Okay, well, two years later, we find out they have this secret clandestine additional enrichment facility deep buried underground that's still been going on since 2003. And as the IAEA will later learn, nuclear weapons-related activities continued in Iran from 2003, at least through 2009, or so we thought. And then just to fast forward a little bit, I know we're going to go back to Iran deal and how we did all this. It's important to understand sort of the continuity of the program, right? There is this nuclear weapons program called the Ahmad Plan that is what I've described into this 1990s into early 2000s nuclear weapons research uh, and development that they're that they're working on. And we don't fully understand the full scope. We, we, we know certain facilities that exist. We've detected certain facilities. We've tried to get the IAEA into certain facilities. We think we have a pretty good picture. 2018, fast forward, the Israelis, the Mossad discovers a full curated nuclear weapons archive in Iran and they steal it. They take it out. And we started to see in academic reports, mostly from FDD, uh, the good ISIS, as it's called, David Albright, uh, a close partner of ours, uh, and other reports you've seen uh, out of the IAEA facilities that have been discovered, really uh, a very sophisticated nuclear weapons uh, program and infrastructure that starts getting dissipated and compartmentalized after 2003, and clearly has tentacles that have continued all the way till today in a secret military organization called SPND, which is separate from its declared uh, apparent public nuclear program, uh, which is run by the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, the AEOI. That's That's who meets with the IAEA. That's who runs these facilities that you know about. But clearly, a whole other set of work still going on, research and development still going on that we don't know about run by the secret military nuclear organization, which was headed by the godfather of the nuclear weapons program, who is no longer on this earth, Mohsen Day that you probably all heard about, who uh, you can read sort of interesting ways that the potentially the Israelis assassinated him in Iran. Uh, but that is sort of the continuity of the program from then to today with a lot of open questions we can talk about. One quick question I just want you to clarify. We talk about, you talk about the international community. Am I wrong in believing that Russia, China, and certainly North Korea all contributed to the nuclear weapons program, all assisted the Iranians with this nuclear weapons program at various points? I don't know if at any point they stopped, but they all, but again, while saying, oh, this is a terrible thing, they were helping, were they not? So I think it's important to understand that um, there are countries and their governments uh, that do certain things. And then there are people in countries that do certain things, right? Especially post-Soviet Union. We know of a lot of Russian nuclear scientists who were sort of for hire. Um, So we can sort of glean, you know, questions of 
who else was involved, uh, what sort of assistance may have been provided at certain times. Um, certainly, China had nuclear uh, material uh, and equipment that was for sale. And you would think the government did know about certain procurement uh, that the Iranians made uh, from, from China. And of course, you know, we, we're focused right now this question of the nuclear program, right? The actual enrichment program. There's also a potential reprocessing program that was ex- in existence as well. Remember, there's two tracks to, to a nuclear bomb, a, a, a uranium track and a plutonium track. There was also a heavy water reactor under construction at Iraq. Uh, we don't talk about it as much uh, in the news, but we should. It, it's still there. It has been degraded to a certain extent. It can be retrofitted uh, for the potential uh, uh, development of nuclear weapons uh, through the plutonium uh, path. Uh, and again, they also obviously look to Russia f- to build light water uh, nuclear reactors, provide them on the open market, the stuff we do see. Uh, the actual purchase of uranium, the deliver, uh, delivery of nuclear fuel, uh, the construction of nuclear reactors, and so a very close relationship with Russia as well. And the missile front, right, the the delivery vehicle for a nuclear weapon, which is equally as important, but also not talked about, you see a very clear relationship between North Korea and Iran on the missile program as Iran's missile, ballistic missile program develops, tracking alongside North Korea's ballistic missile program as well. Less clear on the nuclear cooperation side, though various spotty reports throughout the years that indicate some sort of relationship possibly exists. Mark, at a certain point, you became, as we say in Washington, seized with this issue. And you you began to look at strategic options, right? Why don't you pick it up from there? What had been done, what could be done, what was likely to be done, um, talk, talk about how you saw that. Yeah, thanks, Cliff. So I, I came to Washington in 2003. Um, obviously, the, there was a lot of attention in 2003 on, on Iraq, very little on Iran. Uh, Rich has given you know, some of the, the goings-on between the Iranians and, and the E3 at the time. And of course, you know, the Iranians, for a very brief period of time, suspended their enrichment program after George W. Bush invaded Iraq. Um, they, they were shocked by that invasion and they did, they temporarily suspended that program. But as Rich points, points out, they restarted it and have been taking these patient pathways to nuclear weapons ever since. So I came in in 2003. Um, Toby Dershowitz and I began working uh, on, on Hezbollah, actually, uh, and Hezbollah media and Omanar. And, and we sort of started to see the influence of, of Iranian backed Hezbollah and Iran itself throughout the region. Um, as we we mounted a campaign against uh, Hezbollah and Hezbollah media, we we learned how to actually run a campaign. We learned the value of um, of sanctions, of of using legislation, of working with the executive branch. Uh, and Toby and I and and, and our team, uh, after getting some some pretty impressive results against Hezbollah, realized that there was an opportunity to to run a similar campaign against the Islamic Republic in general. And really using the same instruments of, of American power uh, and American um, influence. And really, I guess my background, I came from venture capital, I came from high tech, you know, I have business background, legal background. I wasn't some great uh, you know, Henry Kissinger uh, geopolitical strategist or, or certainly a Charles Kreidheimer uh, great thinker. I, I began to understand that there was some real value in the use of economic sanctions. And at the time, the Bush administration's Treasury Department was beginning to use 
sanctions uh, and designations. And, and the undersecretary at the time, a guy named Stuart Levy, um, had really be- begun uh, with his predecessor, Juan Zarate, who's the chair of FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power, to understand how do you use economic power against America's enemies, and began to develop these tools. Um, and a young staffer in the House of uh, Representatives, a guy named Rich Goldberg, I've heard uh, of him. Yeah, I heard of him. Was working with uh, with Mark Kirk, and uh, and at some point, Rich uh, went over to the Senate with with then then now Senator Kirk, um, and Congress began working on this. FDD began working on this, uh, and the Treasury Department began working on this. As administrations transitioned from Bush to Obama, I think the one good thing that President Obama did on this file is he kept Stuart Levy in that position during the transition, uh, and Stuart accelerated his work with the Treasury team at the, at, uh, the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And we really um, began to accelerate our work at FDD on the entire sanctions file. And certainly we can talk a lot more about that. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to come back to. But let me go to Toby first and bring her to the conversation. Toby, I'm particularly interested when, when you first began, began to discuss these issues with members of Congress, were they were they interested? Were they distracted by Iraq? Were they knowledgeable? Was it an education process? Was it very? What, what, what was your experience? Sure. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, first, let me. You know, Mark reminded me of um, what I think was a, sort of a seminal development back in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine that showed how U.S. leverage could have an important impact on Iran's coffers, and that was the case of Reliance. Uh, Reliance, of course, was India's largest private sector company, and FDD discovered that the Export-Import Bank was providing loans for Reliance to refine oil specifically for the Iranian market. Uh, It was one of our earliest campaigns that um, helped us understand how better to leverage economic statecraft and economic warfare to press Iran to try to change its calculus uh, and if certainly if we could not change its calculus uh, because of the nature of the Iranian regime, we would try to squeeze it financially to l- limit its ability to carry out these malign activities. At the time, Reliance was exporting uh, petroleum products worth, uh, as I recall, about $14 billion, of which around 5% was exported to the United States. And what we decided, and I think central to what Mark was saying, is that um, we tried to convey that Uh, if the U.S. chose to use it, that we could use leverage and put companies to a choice, either do business with the United States or do business with Iran as it was engaging uh, in its malign activities. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to to that anecdote. Um, And it was was a successful campaign early on. Uh, 25 senators introduced a bill that aimed to punish companies that were uh, engaged in, in this sort of activity. Um, Coming back to members of Congress, look, um, sanctions on Iran are are not that new. I think what we have to continually remind members of Congress on both sides of the aisle um, is that um, they, you know, Iran does respond to uh, sanctions. It does respond to Americans caring about these issues. I would say educating members of Congress is an ongoing process. Um, We can't depend uh, on them sort of remembering the history of Iran's malign activities. And that's what we try to do each and every day. Mark, let's focus uh, on the Obama administration because if memory serves, early on, you you were fairly optimistic that there was this, this, was a, this would be a serious approach, diplomatic, but that Obama 
believed, and I think he said at that point that, you know, hey, we're going to negotiate, but no deal is better than a bad deal, which is not the way it ended up. Take it from there. <laughs> well, I may, I may engage in some historical revisionism and say, no, Cliff, I'm very <laughs> skeptical of the Obama administration on their Iran policy. Um, but I think in the early days of Obama, I mean, keeping Stuart Levy on board at Treasury, um, looking at, you know, Treasury's activities, um, seeing that there was at least a commitment to to sanctions pressure, uh, and then seeing on, on, in Congress when, you know, young staffers like Rich Goldberg and others who were working on this, the Senate side, uh, working with FDD, coming up with ideas about how do we turn economic sanctions into economic warfare? Right. And so there were a number of really important pieces of legislation, um, a number of which uh, Rich was very involved in uh, in drafting. Our colleague Matt Weig on the House side, who worked for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, was very involved in drafting. These were sanctions that really moved beyond just designations and economic pressure to what to economic warfare, going after Iran's oil sector, right? investment in that oil sector, the export of oil. Uh, and we can tell, you know, various anecdotes about about the the difficulties that we all got, or we all had in getting that legislation passed, because there was a huge amount of resistance. I mean, again, I think Rich, you you probably remember, oil was also over a hundred dollars. There was a lot of resistance to um, putting on additional pressures, taking off two million barrels of Iranian oil a day. What would the the price shocks, the impact on supply chains? Um, so we were able to devise legislation. Uh, that dealt with that pressure. We went after the Central Bank of Iran. Again, you know, it's blacklisting the Central Bank of Iran was a huge deal. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe the North Korean Central Bank had been blacklisted before, but Iran was a serious economy, $400 billion GDP. We're going after their central bank. That was a big deal. Uh, we went after Iran's access to the SWIFT system, which is the financial messaging system that uh, Iran was using. There were dozens of Iranian banks that were accessing SWIFT and using that to move money around the world. Again, you know, we, there was a lot of resistance from the Obama Treasury Department to taking um, a country off the SWIFT system. And we had some, um, some difficult discussions with, uh, with Treasury at the time. But I think first term Obama, there was a commitment to pressure. And so the disagreements were sort of between the 30 yard lines between kind of Congress and the, and the administration, between the US government and FDD. I think we were all engaged in kind of figuring out how far we could push this and what kind of innovative ideas could be legislated and turned into executive action. And I would say by you know the end of first term Obama, the pressure had built and there was a lot of bipartisan support for continued and growing economic warfare against the regime. You know, Rich, I, I, it seems to me that the Obama administration had a philosophical view, which, which was that Iran the Islamic Republic of Iran, they had legitimate grievances. If we address those grievances, that would be helpful. I think Rob, Rob Malley, who is the uh, the point man on Iran for the Biden administration, uh, holds these views very, very much. Um, Obama had what what I've sometimes called the, uh, the Mr. Rogers policy, which was that you know, Iran should be allowed to share the neighborhood with uh, the Saudis and the Israelis, and and they'd all they'd all get along very nicely. And essentially, it was a policy of appeasement. Okay, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran wants more power. Let's let them have some more power. And if they have a little more power, surely they'll be satisfied and we'll all be good friends. And surely, President Obama thought they want to be friends with me, of all people. 
Is that how you see the the, the, the philosophical structure behind Obama's approach and policies and Biden's, by the way? I think there were. I think there were a lot of people in, in the Obama administration who who had that basic philosophy. I think that's true. I think that that philosophy has evolved and become much more ideologically dogmatic over the last decade than it was in that initial decade. If you go from like the 2002-2003 exposure of Iran's nuclear program uh, until that you know end of first term Obama. I do think that there, if you look back on that era, and some of this, I think, even existed in the Bush administration, you know, there was this view of there is a true reformist camp inside the Iranian regime that that we we had seen a so-called reformist president. And uh, there were students who were standing up and, and wanting to move the government in a new direction. And maybe there's a way to manipulate the system. And to appeal to these moderates and these reformists and empower them and take advantages away from the hardliners, the clerics. Um, and then, you know, we got stuck with this crazy man, Ahmadinejad. And what are we supposed to do with this guy who stands up and says he's going to wipe Israel off the map and denies the Holocaust and every day goes on TV and says something crazier, right? So the politics are terrible for, for you if you want to be anyway sympathetic to Iran, and you're dealing with a quote-unquote hardline government there. And so I do think that the approach definitely was there's a way to appeal to a segment of the Islamic Republic to the regime and peel them away. And we saw that narrative form and give birth to the JCPOA, right? When suddenly we saw the election of Hassan Rouhani taking over from two-term Ahmadinejad, following a stolen election, following everything that had been Ahmadinejad, this was their moment to say, look, the moderate has been elected. We, Our policies have worked. We had this outreach. We, we've calculated correctly. Um, we want to show them that we're willing to relieve sanctions. This is the Congress that has been pushing all this stuff. We want to help. And Iran has responded. The Supreme Leader gets it. And now this JCPOA is going to be this moment to reset the relationship and empower the moderates, right? And a lot of us, certainly, I think everybody at FDD, uh, our colleagues like uh, Ruel, Mark Gorecht, uh, others, our friends, uh, Ray Takei at CFR, people who are really experts in understanding the nature of this regime said, uh, yeah, hardline or moderate, like, yeah, you might have some nuance there, but like, you know, the difference between a moderate and, and, uh, and a hardliner when it comes to building a nuclear weapon trying to destroy America, all that. Yeah, they're on the same page on all that stuff, right? It's just a matter of how they're going to couch certain things. And Rouhani, we had seen the evidence, right? Had been involved in the EMEA bombing, had been involved in, in terrorism against the West, clearly devoted to the to the Islamic revolution and destruction of the great Satan in the United States and a little Satan Israel. Um, but but they believed the narrative, right? Because that's how, how they viewed things. And I think since then, as you move into, you talk about Rob Malley, who's the special envoy for Iran now, you see the religion that the JCPOA, the Iran deal has become. I do think now there is there is just this belief, this ideology that, no, Iran's just not an enemy. We can we can have relations with Iran. This has all been manipulated for us. And, and it's like, well, guys, did you see what Rouhani was doing while he was president? Did you see the oppression inside Iran? Did you see, though, the ballistic missile program continue to advance? 
Did you see that they hid the nuclear weapons archive from us? You see that he he just negotiated a deal that got himself over $100 billion and still kept him on his way to nuclear weapons. Yeah, you know, we're the fools here, right? They, there, there is no moderate reformist camp anymore. And you've seen people like Shireen Abadi, right, the Nobel Prize laureate, who used to be part of this quote-unquote reformist camp, stand up finally over the last couple of years and say, there is no such thing as a reformist. The Islamic Republic is the Islamic Republic, and it is unsavable. There's a really interesting point here to make because I, I also um, I think Rich is right. I think there are people. I think um, John Kerry was one of them uh, who really believed that you could seduce the hard men of Iran to become responsible global stakeholders by you know flooding them with cash and integrating them into the global economy and letting them sell their oil and and letting them uh, do business with Westerners. I think in the Biden administration um, that view continues, and and I think Rob Malley represents that view. But I think there are people who are a little more hard headed about that threat and a little bit less naive about that uh, assumption. People like, uh, you know, Jake Sullivan. And so the real question is, within the administration, why do those people want to return back to the JCPOA? We, we know why the raw Malleys of the world want to return back to it. But why, why does Jake Sullivan want to return back to this deal? A deal that we believe is fatally flawed. Now, the interesting point here is that we had a huge debate in 2015, as everybody knows, uh, over the JCPOA in Congress, hearings, and uh, and a huge media debate. And at the time, the Obama administration said, this deal permanently cuts off all pathways to nuclear weapons, right? So Rich has given you this whole history of Iran's patient pathways to nuclear weapons. The Obama administration said, we've cut off those patient pathways permanently. Now, of course, FDD and members of Congress and others said, well, you, of course, you haven't because contained within the JCPOA are sunset provisions under which the key restrictions in Iran's nuclear program, missile program, uh, ability to build conventional arms, et cetera, et cetera, expire. So Iran can take patient pathways to nuclear weapons. It doesn't even have to cheat under the agreement. It can just wait. So now fast forward seven years ago, the interesting thing is the Biden administration has accepted that argument, right? President Biden, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken have gone out repeatedly and said, we are going to go back into the JCPOA and we're going to negotiate a longer and stronger agreement. They, they used to say longer and stronger and broader. They dropped broader. It became longer and stronger. Um, actually, I haven't heard them say that in a while, but that certainly has been their official policy. So they have actually accepted our arguments from 2015 that the JCPOA is fundamentally flawed. And now they need to go negotiate a new agreement that extends the sunset, deals with the problems on inspections, restricts missiles, et cetera. And so this is where we are in 2022. I don't think we're any longer negotiating with an administration that is deluded about moderates because the current president of Iran is Raisi, who's a mass murderer. So he is like Ahmadinejad on steroids, or he's like Ahmadinejad who's operationalized Ahmadinejad's rhetoric and actually killed and been responsible for the murder of, you know, literally thousands of people. So there's no longer this kind of moderate delusion. Now the debate, and I think, and I'll stop there because I think we need to talk about this, is we need to put Iran's program back in a box. And then we need to go to negotiate a longer and stronger agreement that will now permanently cut off Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons. One more piece of the uh, the history that I want to get in here for people who are following this and trying to understand, but then I want to go to the where we are right now. And that is in 2013, you had an interim agreement 
seem, which seemed promising. For the next two years, they continued to negotiate. The Iranians very cleverly said, I've got one more concession you need you to make. Okay, one more concession. I don't think, you can tell me if I'm wrong, the Americans got any concessions from the Iranian side. They just gave them. Then 2015, you have the JCPOA, which is, as you say, fatally flawed. Sunset does nothing about missile development, um, does nothing about, of course, terrorism and aggression and all of that. Um, the Trump administration pulls out of it, says this this deal is is so bad we can't do it, and begins a maximum a so-called maximum pressure campaign, which what you mark certainly uh, were pressing the administration to do. It only lasted a couple of years, but it was having a significant impact. But it takes a long time for that kind of pressure to really uh, bear fruit. Feel free to comment on any of that, but then we get to the present day where we, where everybody thought until very recently, okay, they're going to go back into the JCPOA and it's going to be not longer and stronger, but shorter and weaker. And then, as I understand it, the Iranians said, by the way, one more slight concession. Uh, would you mind terribly the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps? It's on your foreign terrorist organization list. Maybe you could just pull it off of there. And President Biden, I think to his credit, has said, I can't go that far. Too many people, not least in the military, said, you understand the Iranian, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of of Americans. Who wants to pick that up from there? Toby, you want to say a couple of words about that? I do. Um, And if I can, Cliff, just one uh, thing that Mark mentioned uh, was that the administration has uh, talked about, you know, putting the Iran deal back in the box. You know, I understand why the administration um, wants to say it that way. And this is an important point for, for Congress. Um, they want to portray this, this sort of new deal as just going back into the same old deal for one specific reason. Um, and that is so that Congress does not have to review the deal. In 2015, Congress passed INARA, um, a law that requires the administration to submit any deal related to Iran's nuclear program to Congress for review. And during that review period, the president can't make any changes or waive anything, suspend anything related to sanctions. So the administration clearly doesn't want a new deal to go through a congressional review process. And that's one of the reasons uh, from a messaging perspective, it is characterizing it as just going back into the 2015 deal which of course uh, it isn't. Uh, Sorry for that digression, Cliff, thought it was important to underscore that Congress needs to see its role uh, as as having uh, oversight. I'm coming back to the FTO and the IRGC. So yes, one of the most visible non-nuclear elements of the nuclear deal or a would-be nuclear deal, if it comes to fruition in fact, is rescinding the foreign terrorist organization designation or the FTO on Iran's revolutionary guards. You'll recall uh, that it was placed on um, on the IRGC back in the in the last administration, as you mentioned. Uh, the IRGC is responsible for killing uh, hundreds of Americans. Um, why is this? Why would it be so problematic to to lift this designation? Uh, isn't it just a concession that's symbolic, as the administration has argued? And I would say it is not symbolic in the slightest. Uh, and if it were just symbolic, Iran wouldn't be pushing so hard to get it lifted. Right, it it has teeth, and if it didn't, uh, again, Iran wouldn't be uh, pushing to get it lifted. Uh, just ask the nearly 1,200 Gold Star family members 
who sent a letter to President Biden in January, or ask the 900 plus Gold Star families who wrote to President Biden again in April. Um, and what they said in their letter is two things. First, do not lift the FTO designation. And second, and perhaps we'll talk about this uh, in, in greater depth, um, do not um, unfreeze any assets, uh, Iranian assets, before the American victims of terrorism, including 603 American service members, judgments against Iran have been satisfied, right? There's about $60 billion um, in judgments earned in U.S. courts, $60 billion in judgments against the Iranian regime. That Those judgments, some of which go back to uh, 2006, 2007, haven't been satisfied. These American service members and their families have, have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and what they are saying is, do, Mr. President, please do not unfreeze assets. Please deal with our, um, our, our judgments. Uh, so it's far from symbolic, and this is one of the things that, that the administration, um, I think, um, has, has said uh, informally. I don't know that the President Cliff has, has, has actually said he won't lift the designation. I think they're, they're trying to sort of have it both ways. Um, but we would urge uh, not to lift it. One way that they're trying to have it both ways, I've heard reports on this, maybe I know Mark, Rich, is that the administration, the probably Mali has said, look, how about if we, what if we did this? What if we were to lift the uh, the, the, the terrorist designation? Um, but you guys will make a public promise that you're not going to try to kill any former or current American officials. That would be really helpful to us. Um, by the way, they didn't say, hey, guys, promise you won't kill any Americans, just officials and former government officials. That's particularly relevant here at FDD since Mark, you and others have been threatened by name by, by, the, by, by, by the regime. And But essentially, the, 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 the Iranians said, uh, you know what, we're not going to make a promise like that. Uh, we may want to kill some officials. So, uh, you know, go pound sand. Have I got that right? It's worse than that. I mean, first of all, you know, Rich has been designated. I've been designated. Ruel Markarek, Matt Pottinger. So four of us have been designated and threatened by the regime. And so we take this somewhat personally, but it was worse than that. And it, it underscores a broader point about how brilliant this regime is at negotiating. So what, what Mali said was, we'll lift it if you promise not to escalate in the region. The Iranians said no. Well, we'll lift it if you promise not to kill Americans. The Iranians said no. Well, we will lift it if you promise not to kill former government officials and current officials. And the Iranians said no. Now, there's two things that I, I really want to point out about this IRGC issue. The first is we have to be very careful about the way in which the Biden administration can turn this against us, because it is entirely possible that they find some kind of compromise formulation that they think they can sell both to the Iranians and to Congress, or the Iranians, in their negotiating um, strategy, which we've seen over and over again, make outrageous demands that they know will never be met, right? make a huge issue of those demands so they sound like incredibly valuable to the Iranians, though they may not be as valuable as the Iranians are pretending they are. And then they trade that for a whole bunch of other concessions that they want. So it's entirely possible we are going to see a return back to the JCPOA where the Iranians agree to concede on the IRGC issue in exchange for a whole a dozen other concessions that so far the administration has not given them. So I think it's still 
that we're going back into the JCPOA. And I want to underscore this because the Iranians have done this consistently year after year after year. I mean, you said the 2013 interim agreement, yeah, it was a pretty good deal. And the 2015 agreement was fatally flawed. Well, actually, the 2013 agreement was the fatally flawed agreement. That's the one that surrendered on enrichment and reprocessing. There were multiple UN Security Council resolutions throughout the Bush administration that said Iran should be prohibited from enrichment and reprocessing, right? Rich has given the history of why that's so dangerous and the Iranian program and, and progression. Well, we had an international consensus until 2013, no enrichment, no reprocessing for the leading state sponsor of terrorism, right? We signed the UAE, UAE up to something called the gold standard, the South Koreans up to the gold standard saying you can have civilian nuclear energy, but you cannot reprocess or enrich on your soil. So for allies, we had the gold standard for the leading state sponsor of terrorism in 2013. We had the Iran standard because the Iranians were making demands. They were negotiating uh, ferociously. And Jake Sullivan, who's now the, the national security advisor, and Bill Burns, who's now the CIA director, negotiated in 2013 with the Iranians and conceded that we're giving you enrichment and reprocessing. Let's negotiate about how much now. They also, they also conceded sunsets, which is effectively the fatal flaw of the JCPOA, and a number of other things that created the framework for then the fatally flawed 2015 agreement. And then the 2015 agreement was a classic Iranian negotiating um, case study where they made demand after demand after demand, and John Kerry and Wendy Sherman kept making concession after concession after concession. And so you have to realize, Cliff, you have this unbelievable imbalance where the small regional power right? About 80 million people, $400 billion GDP, relatively small military, right? And at the, and still a fairly small nuclear program is making ex stringent demands of the superpower. And that superpower is conceding and conceding and conceding and conceding. And, and I think that's the real history of Iran's nuclear program uh, beyond the technical detail. And, and there's this point that should be made, uh, and, and Rich, you might want to, and that is we keep talking about the negotiations going on between the Biden administration and the Islamic Republic of Iran. The fact of the matter is these two parties have not been in the same room. They've not been negotiating over a table. They don't meet. And why don't they meet? Because the Iranian side says we will not deign to sit down with those dastardly Americans. We won't, we won't talk to them. But if there's somebody who can act as intermediary, and guess who one of the main intermediaries is? It's a Russian envoy, a Putin envoy, walking back and forth between the two delegations saying, well, here's a proposal from the Americans. Okay, you don't accept that. Let me, add, let me ask the Americans if they'll do what you want to do. And that, be, that is always a bad idea, but it's a particularly bad idea given what the, develop, the late developments, which is also part of what I want to get into. Go ahead, Rich, start on that. Well, the entire posture of, of this round of negotiations was already far worse than the initial bad negotiations run by Kerry uh, and Sherman, you know, the first time around, because you come in with this historic amount of sanctions pressure, right? Absolutely historic. IMF saying Iran was down potentially to $4 billion of accessible foreign exchange reserves at the beginning of 2020. And Iran starts testing a new administration, right? They're running out of cash. They're up against the wall at the IAEA. There's an investigation that's been going on now for years, pretty much, 
into the nuclear archive and to related sites that have been discovered and nuclear material that's been found, all undeclared, all unexplained. Where are things today? What was it a part of? You can't fully verify a nuclear program without understanding the full accounting of that nuclear program. That's a basic concept, by the way, missed by the JCPOA itself and still being missed today. And, you know, with all this pressure and right, uh, Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, dead. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who I talked about, assassinated. So Iran's feeling a lot of pressure here beginning of 2021. And so they start escalating to see what Biden will do. 20% enriched uranium, 60% enriched uranium, uh, kick out inspectors from certain uh, facilities, uh, start taking videotapes of the IAEA hostage so the uh, inspectors can't verify the continuity of certain sites, start attacking U.S. Uh, forces throughout the region in Iraq, in Syria, really escalate dozens of attacks by UAV and rocket, start attacking our allies in the region, start attacking maritime traffic in the region. And we do nothing across the board. There's no enforcement of economic sanctions anymore from day one. In fact, there's a relaxation of economic sanctions. And you see China vastly increasing their imports uh, of Iranian oil. You see the waivers issued from the administration to allow Iran access to their frozen funds to pay off debts to avoid a balance of payments crisis. They pull back all resolutions of censure at the IAEA in Vienna, despite Iran's non-cooperation with this investigation into clandestine nuclear activities. Let me say that again. Ongoing clandestine nuclear activities today while we are negotiating this. No central resolutions. Nope. Nope. We're going to keep offering you whatever you want to go back to this deal. They're shooting at our forces. They're firing missiles. They're they're killing. They're trying to kill our allies. We do nothing in response. We keep at the table. They have an election or what we should call a selection and change presidents to, if you want to use the terminology, the hardliners hardliner, right, who builds a cabinet of Iran Terror Inc., uh, of people who are sanctioned and wanted by Interpol for all kinds of horrible things. The president himself, the butcher, the hangman of Tehran, somebody who has executed, personally put to death thousands of people by his order, right? That's the people that are put in charge by the Supreme Leader to be the face of Iran, to tro- show you who they really are, right? There's no more narrative of Rouhani, the moderate. And in the face of all of this, we stay at the table and say, let us talk to you. Let us offer you money. Let us help you as the enrichment increases, as the nuclear program advances. And they won't talk to us. They say, no, we won't talk to the Americans. So Rob Malley says, okay, we'll settle for indirect talks, as you were alluding to. Indirect talks. We'll sit in a different classroom. They'll sit with all our friends and we'll pass notes. And it just goes on and on for months. It gets nowhere. So who does Rob Malley turn to? He flies to Moscow and he meets with the highest level of the Russian government and says, you have the relationship with the Iranians. You can help us. How can we help you help us? You're in charge now. You tell us what you go talk to the Iranians, whatever they want, whatever you want. You'll be part of the deal. You'll get paid for the deal. You'll make billions of dollars off the deal. We will help you, Moscow. We will help Vladimir Putin. And, you know, it was all going real well. They were about to have a big deal. And then, oops, turns out Putin's, in fact, a murderous dictator who invades Ukraine. And the administration gets caught with their pants down, involved with the Russians, putting the Russians at the center of this negotiation. And the Russians start saying, oh, wow, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Congress is figuring this out. We're now the front of this whole deal. Uh, 
if we get sanctioned via secondary sanctions from the United States, which, by the way, is finally on the table in a whole other conversation about Russia sanctions, then if the Central Bank of Iran does business with the Central Bank of Russia and the Central Bank of Russia at some point is under secondary sanctions in the United States, we would be on the hook to impose sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran or any other Iranian bank or company doing business with sanctioned Russian entities, which means the Iran deal doesn't work because all of those banks are supposed to have sanctions lifted. So I think that's actually a part of what's really going on here. You can't disconnect the Russian invasion of Ukraine from why we have halted. The IRGC may or may not be real, may or may not be a, a real demand. It could be an excuse, but that's all going on. One thing I want to say as well, I, I mentioned this briefly, the mistake of the JCPOA and the repeated mistake now We are right now on the verge. We're coming up on the June board meeting of the International Atomic Energy Agency. We have a director general of the IAEA. People may remember the movie Team America World Police and the jokes of what we used to think of Mohamed El-Baradeh and the IAEA and, and, and others and you know, or what, or what Hans Blix, you'll do what to me, you know, says, um, says the North Korean dictator in the movie. Um, And now you actually have a very strong-willed independent director general of this agency who is calling out to the world, I am alarmed that Iran continues to hide and obscure and obfuscate about its clandestine nuclear activities. We have found nuclear material that is unaccounted for. We have found sites unaccounted for. And nobody will listen to him. Nobody will pause. He has said, you can't go back to this deal if this isn't accounted for. He has said that this year. And we still keep talking like, it doesn't exist. Like there's no unaccounted for nuclear material in sites in Iran. It's nuts. So all eyes should be on this June meeting of the board meeting because there was a timetable set by the IAEA director general earlier this year to allow Iran to report to him and try to be truthful. He has said they have not been truthful. He's going to report to the board on the status of this investigation. And one more wrench, I think it's going to be thrown in to the Biden administration's plans to rejoin the JCPOA. Yeah, Cliff, I mean, I just want to underscore something. I think it's really important to understand. I mean, is the Biden administration nuts or do they have a plan or what's going on? Right. Because, I mean, we can dig into the details and we can show how egregious this all is. And I think we've, you know, we've we've covered that in a fair amount of detail. But I I think there was one phrase by Joe Biden that explains everything. I, I really I believe this is the crux of it. I will not allow Iran, says Joe Biden, to get a nuclear weapon. On my watch. On my watch. We've all lived in Washington long enough. Cliff, you and Toby more than, than me and Rich, but we, Rich and I have been here, what, 20 years, Rich? We, we know the politics of this, right? And the politics of this is, is probably true. That if they go back into the JCPOA, Iran will not, get a, will not get a nuclear weapon on Joe Biden's watch. Certainly not in his first term. And if Joe Biden runs for office, probably not even in his second term, because under the JCPOA, Iran's nuclear program gets really dangerous in 2027, and then increases in its in its danger through 2028, 2029. By 2030, all bats are off. At that point, all restrictions go away, and there's no prohibition against Iran developing weapons-grade uranium in the JCPOA. I want to underscore that. The nuclear deal signed in 2015 does not prohibit Iran from developing weapon-grade uranium in 2031. Okay, so if you're the Iranians and you've listened to Rich's history and you've understood at the end of the day that, that 
the Iranian game plan here is to take patient pathways, patient pathways to multiple nuclear weapons under the cover of a civilian nuclear program, being able to mislead the international community to pretend that they're interested in civilian energy while they're building out the various components of a nuclear weapon, the enriched uranium, the reprocessed plutonium, a nuclear warhead, and, and, and missiles to deliver them, both ballistic missiles and ultimately ICBMs that can hold American cities hostage, then they are doing exactly what they plan to do, which is follow these patient pathways to around 2030, 2031. And then all these pathways converge. By the way, at the time, right, our, our colleague Said Afghasamanajad has calculated the JCPOA will give Iran $275 billion in the first year and $800 billion by year five and over trillion dollars by 2030. Okay. So Iran gets by 2030 multiple enrichment facilities under the agreement, near zero nuclear breakout under the agreement, advanced centrifuge powered clandestine sneak out capabilities under the agreement. It gets over a trillion dollars in sanctions relief, right? Which that it can harden its economy against our ability to use sanctions pressure in the future. And it can fund its malign activities and proxies through the region. And it can build up a huge conventional army to match its very talented and deadly proxies by buying fighter jets and attack helicopters and battle tanks from the Russians and the Chinese who, who obviously are both eager to sell to the Iranians. So you look ahead 2030, a Joe Biden ain't president, right? Who knows who will be president at that time, but that's somebody else's problem. And so as far as they're concerned, they want to take the program, they want to put it back in a box. And as Rich has said, it's the only box in history without a top, without a side. They want to basically take that box and put it on the shelf and they want to move on to other priorities. And this will be somebody else's problem. I believe that's what explains the administration's policy. It's not insanity. It's not stupidity. It's not even ideology. It's, it's, it's politics. All right. I'm going to be respectful of everyone's time. I'm going to make one quick point. Mark, I'm going to ask you one quick question. Then I'm going to let Toby and Rich add anything or stress anything they want to. And the one point I want to make is in 1994, the Ukraine Ukraine agreed to give up its the nuclear weapons it had as left over from the Soviet Union. They did that in re, and they got it in, re, in exchange what's called the Budapest Memo, which was meant to guarantee their sovereignty and security. It was signed by the U.S., the U.K., and, of course, the Russians. And, of course, it wasn't worth the paper it was written on, uh, certainly not from the Russian point of view. That sends a message to a lot of people around the world, oh, it's really useful to have nuclear weapons. Also, Putin has been able to go ahead and invade and, and rape Ukraine and in part because he has nuclear weapons, everyone's, well, we better be very careful of him. That also sends a message, not least to people like the supreme leader in, in Iran, to say nuclear weapons are a very useful thing to have. No way I'm giving it up in, in exchange for anything. I'm going to get nuclear weapons so I can achieve my neo-imperialist ambitions. That's an, So the, the whole non-proliferation movement has been severely damaged, if not destroyed. Mark, any, do you want to say anything? Uh, and I can think we probably heard some of it. You're testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee next week. Your panel follows Robert Malley, who we've been talking about, the U.S. Envoy for Iran negotiations. Anything you want to preview on that? We'll, of course, report um, and talk about this 
coming up afterwards. But just I'll give you that quick, and then we'll go to Rich and uh, Toby wrap up. Yeah, I mean, Cliff, you've always ta- taught us at FDDs, we shouldn't only admire the problem. We need to come up with real recommendations that are actionable. And I think that bottom line is, I think FDD and others have done a very good job at pointing out why this is a fatally flawed agreement, why it is geopolitical malpractice to go back into this agreement. But the question is, what do we do about the Iranian nuclear weapon? And I mean, I've got, we don't have much time to talk about this, but I, I would just say at the end of the day, we need a Reagan strategy, the strategy that Reagan deployed against the Soviet Union, where he used all instruments of American power, right, to ultimately defeat and collapse a superpower that had thousands of nuclear tip missiles aimed at our cities. And Reagan had the courage right, and the understanding that this was an evil regime at the end of the day needed to be brought down. And he was willing to deploy all instruments of American power to counter and undermine and roll back and ultimately defeat the Soviets, ideologically, politically, militarily, economically, uh, through you know a 1980s version of, of cyber. We need to do the same thing. We need a Reagan strategy. The Trump administration was moving in that direction. I think they were overly reliant on economic sanctions and not willing to use other instruments of American power. But the next president, whoever that is, a Republican or a Democrat, ultimately needs to adopt Reagan and use that strategy and deploy all instruments of American power because the only guarantee against Iran not producing and deploying a nuclear weapon is the collapse of this regime. Toby, why don't you give a couple of final thoughts before we close out? Sure. You know, we talked about Russia briefly, right? Russia's role. And there's an irony here, which is that the U.S. thought that they could use the good offices of Putin to help seal the deal. In recent weeks, Democratic members of Congress have told me that the Russian role in the new Iran deal was a game changer for them. I mean, yes, they knew about Russia's role before, but now there's like a split screen. So Russia's brutality in Ukraine on the one side and Russia as a central player in the Iran negotiations on the other side. We know that um, the new deal hinges on Russia's agreement to house the uranium that Iran has been enriching. And the administration publicly said, well, this is not a problem. But it was the fact that Russia publicly said that one of these written guarantees that the new Western sanctions imposed on Moscow over the invasion of Ukraine would not interfere with its trade uh, and military cooperation with Iran that was central to the deal unraveling, right? One member of Congress uh, told me just last week that the deal is dead, she thought, but that was before Enrica Mori went to Tehran. Can it be resurrected? I don't know, but I would just close in saying Russia's role in the New Deal with the backdrop cliff of what you said was the rape of Ukraine may actually prove to be the downfall of the deal. I kind of hope so. Rich, any final thoughts to add or emphasize? Three quick disparate thoughts to pull it all together. (laughs) One on Russia to reinforce what Mark said. If you are not paying attention to the role And the game-changing way nuclear weapons power changes the way you think about warfare, you think about geopolitics, you think about your options, watch what is happening in Ukraine. And the the incredible lack of options and lack of creativity and the uh, decision to self-restrain in the face of a nuclear power for fear of escalation, for fear of getting into something else, for fear of their nuclear stockpile plays a role in government. If Iran goes nuclear, it's a game changer. It is a game changer. And just relying on some deal you think might delay it for a little bit 
but actually will still lead to a nuclear weapon or could still lead to a nuclear weapon, even if you concede that point, needs to be a wake-up call for you to say, no, we have a prevention policy. We have a preemption policy. We will not allow this regime a nuclear weapons capability. Number two, IRGC. We talked a little bit about this. I want to just hammer this home. The IRGC, uh, the FTO designation, the Foreign Terrorist Organization designation, is not symbolic. It carries incredible criminal liabilities, visa restrictions, uh, other uh, sorts of authorities that are separate from sanctions. Uh, so this idea out there that it's symbolic is not true. But also, listen to what the president is saying. His senior advisors, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the secretary of state are saying, the IRGC Quds forces are terrorists. They have conceded that point. They are terrorists. It's a terrorist organization. Now, they may be trying to wiggle, as Mark alluded to, that the Quds force, right, the, that arm of the IRGC is a terrorist group, not the overall IRGC. By the way, what a slippery slope that would be for Hezbollah and Hamas. But even if you took them at their word, the Quds forces are terrorists. Well, by the way, the Treasury Department designation of the Central Bank of Iran, the National Iranian Oil Company, the Tanker Company, a host of other banks and companies in Iran are all tied to financing the Quds Force, the terror financing of the Quds Force. Why would we be offering to lift sands on the Central Bank of Iran when it is designated for financing the Quds Force? The terrorists, as you called them, Mr. President, doesn't make sense. Third, final, sunsets. Mark talked about this. There is a, a, a reflexive decision to look to 2031, right? The last sunset. But I think that is very short-sighted of the Biden administration because I think they may be setting themselves up for a crisis next year if they go forward without moving sunsets. There is a hidden sunset that takes place in October of 2023 called Transition Day, where if you get to that point, the United States is obligated to seek the repeal of all of its statutory sanctions on Iran. That ain't happening. That ain't happening with this Congress. It's certainly not happening with the Congress as it may appear next January. So let me ask you, Mr. President, what are you going to do when the Iranians say, hey, you haven't sought the repeal of the Central Bank of Iran sanctions and Sasada and the Iran Sanctions Act and all these other sanctions? You're supposed to seek the repeal by Congress. And you didn't do it. We get to snap back. We get to start enriching again. Otherwise, you need to pay us more. You need to give us more. We could be in a nuclear crisis next October and nobody's seeing it. So, yeah, we're talking about 2031. The Iranians have built in ways, speed bumps, if you will, to create crises long before that. Well, we've gone through a lot. Your analysis is insightful. Recommendations, powerful. Um, I just, let me just say I'm uh, proud and privileged to have you as my colleagues, all of you. So thanks very much for this discussion. Thanks for all the work you do. Thanks to all of you who tuned in and listened. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you understand this situation better. And I hope you'll work on this in any way you can as well. Thanks for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.